Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, you ever stop to think about the irony that the more we love our ice, the more we're contributing to climate change. Takes energy to freeze that water, takes energy to transport it. But for the last couple hundred years or so, alongside industrialization, we've grown quite fond of everything from iced tea to ice hockey to refrigerated medicines. It's a complicated relationship, as we'll explore this hour with Dr. Amy Brady, author of the new book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. That's coming up after the news. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. Bet you didn't know that, one, Gold Rush San Francisco imported the ice for its famous cocktail scene from Alaska. Two, Shark's Ice San Jose is the largest ice rink facility in the western U.S. And three, to the extent refrigerator makers display any sensitivity to the environment, they do so because of California. Today, of course, most Americans don't give a second thought to dairy products in our refrigerators or COVID vaccines kept chill until time of use. But there's a lot of surprising history inside ice, from mixed drinks to skating rinks, a cool history of a hot commodity, which is why we've got author Dr. Amy Brady in to talk about it. Hi, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, this was a fascinating read. You know, I I don't think I realized before reading your book that the ancient Egyptians, Persians, and Greeks cottoned on to the utility of ice in food and medicine. Why did it take centuries for ice to become a globally popular phenomenon? Well, the use of ice uh, changes depending on the culture and history of any community around the world, of course. But here in the United States, uh, it took a long time for ice to catch on because in so many parts of the uh, United States, ice didn't form naturally and and still doesn't. Um, So it took the enterprising thought of uh, a single man to land on the idea to start shipping it from the north to the south. So tell us a little bit more about that, because up until that point, ice was something that was largely for the rich. 
Yeah, that's right. So before electric refrigeration to get ice, people had to carve it and then haul it out of frozen lakes and rivers, um, which was dangerous and very hard work. So it was often relegated to servants, uh, sometimes enslaved servants, to do that work for wealthy people. And then that ice was kept in places called ice houses, which were basically deep wells that went several feet into the ground to be kept cold. And you had to be a, a wealthy landowner in order to have room for such an ice house. Uh, you know, I, one of the in the research for this segment, I came across a fun quote from a 19th century columnist, Bat Masterson. I suppose these, I'll just say fools because he used an uh, archaic term, who argue that because the rich man gets ice in the summer and the poor man gets it in the winter, things are breaking even for both. Maybe so, but I'll swear I can't see it that way. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of worked that way for a long time. And it worked that way, especially for people uh, like many of us in California who who uh, don't really get to see much ice <laughs> at any point in the year. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, because ice was the um, was a commodity for wealthy people, the majority of people living in the United States um, in the 19th century, the early 19th century, and then of course long before that, never had any access to it. Um, but once we had the rise of the American ice trade, ice became more available to other people, and over time, the cost of ice came down so that more and more people could afford it and use it in their everyday lives. So who was it who figured out people needed to be taught what to do with ice? So the American ice trade was founded by a wealthy Bostonian named Frederick Tudor. Uh, Tudor came from one of the wealthiest families in Massachusetts. Um, he was a long a thorn in his father's side. He refused to go to Harvard like his father, a judge, did. Uh, instead, Frederick wanted to make money. And the way he figured out to do that was to ship ice carved from his family's lake in Massachusetts to warm climates around the world. And when he first got this idea, everybody made fun of him. Um, you know, folks in Massachusetts really couldn't fathom anybody paying for ice because they got it for free. Um, and then, of course, nobody knew how to ship it. Um, and then Frederick's innovation was to figure out not how to do that, but then how to get people to buy it once ice landed in these warmer climates. And and what did he fix on? Well, um, I should start off by saying that Frederick Tudor took about 10 years before he successfully got anybody to buy his ice. So in my mind, um, Tudor is already um, an exceptional human being because I can honestly say I don't think I would try anything for 10 years and fail <laughs> before <laughs> I finally succeeded at it. Um, but what had never occurred to him is that for him, where ice was uh, a very common element, you know, he knew how to use it in all kinds of ways. What never occurred to him is that for people living in, say, the Caribbean in the 19th century, long before electric refrigeration, many of them had never even seen ice, let alone knew how to use it to, um, you know, to make delicious things. And so that was his brilliant marketing scheme. He brought ice to places um, where uh, you know ice had never been, and then taught baristas and bartenders how to use ice to make cocktails and to serve, you know, what had previously been lukewarm drinks like tea and mugs of rum. Um, in 
uh, in very cool ways. And he completely transformed how people thought of food and drink. It's interesting to think of, you know, cocktails as being a <laughs> a critical, a critical element in the industrialization of the world. <laughs> Yeah, they absolutely were. Um, you know, it, it was he tried the same thing when he went to the United States, too. So Frederick Tudor started selling ice uh, in the Caribbean. He had a lot of success in Martinique and Cuba. And then after he succeeded there, he turned his eye back to the United States and started bringing his shipments of ice to port cities like uh uh, like Apalachicola and New Orleans. And in New Orleans in particular, where there was already so many different types of people and cultures um, you know, coming together to produce new types of art and music and culinary dishes, there was an appetite to try something new. So when he showed the mixologists there how to use ice in their drinks, they ran with it. And experimented with different shapes of ice, different textures of ice to make all kinds of cocktails. And that's why today we have the Sazerac and the gin fizz and whiskey sour. It's all because of Tudor trying to make a dollar. What came first, the manufacturing of ice and refrigeration or uh, ice cream and iced tea? Oh, ice cream and iced tea came first. Um, Frederick Tudor knew how to make these things long before he even learned uh, or even came up with the idea to sell ice. But um, ice cream and iced tea really took off after the manufacturing of ice, which started happening around the 1860s, 1870s. So about 50 years after Tudor brought ice to the southern states. And, you know, I, another thing that, that just came as a total surprise to me, um, you know, how important black entrepreneurs in particular, like around Washington, D.C., were the people we have to thank for the, for the shape of the ice cream trade today. Yes, this was one of the most fascinating aspects of my research into this book for, for me personally, um, was to learn just how important Black entrepreneurs and immigrants to America were in getting the country hooked on ice. Um, and in fact, they were among the first to create uh, you know, the, the first franchises by selling their ice cream to different cafes and confectionaries. Um, the, the reason why Black Americans were so key in this way was that ice cream was, first it was a luxury item, just like ice was, but then as confectionaries and start and cafes started selling ice or ice cream, um, most of them were segregated and, uh, and were very expensive. So it was really just white, wealthy people who had access to them. When Black Americans started making their own ice cream and opening their own confectionaries, they were open to all people who uh, would not be able to go to these other locations. So, um, you know, Black Americans and people of color for sure, but also poor white Americans who couldn't afford their way into a, a rich white person's confectionery. And, or, or couldn't afford to, you know, like just have the chef downstairs make something <laughs> for the dinner party tonight. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 
why do you think? Well, you know, I, I guess in a way, I'm I'm answering my own question as I ask it. You know, it, it makes sense that that uh, people were faster to adopt ice for things like food and drink than they were for medicine. Even though almost from the beginning of ice manufacture, uh, we we see you know doctors uh, figuring out what ice is good for and and how to how to roll it out on a wider level to to more patients. Yeah, you know, I sometimes um, I think it's easy to forget, you know, the United States is not that old. It's a relatively young country. And um, in the 19th century, we still held on to a lot of, um, you know, Victoria, uh, old ways of thinking about heat and cold that we carried over from Europe, from Victoria, Europe. Um, and the thinking of the day was that it wasn't heat that made people sick. It was cold. You know, as soon as it began to rain and weather became um, chilly, you know, people would seek warm shelter immediately or fear that they would get sick and have to go to the doctor. Yeah, I, I suppose that is sort of the way winter coincides with the flu season. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but then you know I you know there, I guess modern medicine kind of began around the same time as the Civil War, and so th- that was an opportunity for for enterprising or creative uh, physicians to start thinking about um, the the impact of cold in a different way. That's right. The Civil War brought so much death and suffering. There were all the people who died on the battlefield, of course, but then there were people who died of starvation or from wounds um, that, you know, doctors just didn't know how to heal and disease. Um, you know, if a smallpox outbreak happened, um, you know, among, uh, you know, a group of soldiers, they were all going to get it. So, um, disease was was rampant and lots and lots of people died. So yeah, it was during this time that um, that doctors were willing to look for anything to make a difference. And ice was this new commodity that they immediately took to to start reducing swelling and they hope would cure some pretty nasty diseases. We're talking about the ubiquitous presence of ice in American life, how corporations have shaped our relationship to it, and its role in everything from sports to medicine with journalist and historian Amy Brady, whose new book is Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Are you a lover of ice? Do you have a special connection to ice? Join the conversation, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
<laughs> you know what that is, don't you? Uh, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim, and we are talking with journalist and historian Amy Brain- Brady, whose new book is Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. If you have a special connection to ice, we want to hear from you on this show right now today. Pick up that phone and dial 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 733-6786. Uh, perhaps you're one of those people uh, for whom winter sports is a huge part of your life, despite living in a state with little to no naturally occurring ice, unless you're up in the Sierra Nevada or, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe the desert at night when it gets cold enough. Uh, you can also email us, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Uh, Amy, we, we've already got a comment in from Bob who says, some of my fellow curlers may call in during the show, but if not, ice is available for the sport of curling in the Bay Area. You've seen it in the Winter Olympics. It's the sport that involves sliding rocks down a sheet of ice. You can come out and try it. Silicon Valley Curling Club has learned to curl events in San Jose and Fremont, and the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club meets in Oakland. So uh, isn't it good to know you're among people who appreciate ice, at least in a sports context? I, oh, absolutely. Um, I attempted uh, curling in my research for this book, and let's just say it was not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, you know, I, I admit I had watched curling um, during the Winter Olympics, and I thought, you know, <laughs> of all the Olympic sports, I can do that one. <laughs> I can do that. And then I actually attempted it, and it's so much harder than it looks to stay balanced on the ice, to do that graceful slide, to let the rock slide down the sheet of ice to the to the target at the other end. Um, it's really a graceful, beautiful, and difficult sport. And um, I slipped multiple times, much to the amusement of many people <laughs> watching from the sidelines. <laughs> what do you think accounts for the fact uh, that Americans have have in in many different ways, with many different sports, really embraced ice, even in places where water never freezes at any point during the year. Well, the the if you go back to the early nineteenth century, um, long before we have indoor skating rinks, a skating on ice was already extremely popular, and one of the reasons for that is that there weren't a lot of strict social mores around what uh, men and women in particular could do together on the ice. They could skate freely and have conversations without being under the watchful eye of a guardian. And that just didn't happen anywhere else. And so, um, yeah, ice skating just became very, very, very popular. And then when, once we have the invention of mechanical ice and indoor skating rinks become popular, suddenly anybody anywhere can do that. One of the first films made in America was of, a, of an ice hockey game. And as you write, um, you know, when when theater critics talk about something being a blockbuster, that also connects to our history with ice. Yes, yes. The history of ice even touches on interesting entomology or, or origins of phrases. So um, back in the, in the 19th century, uh, there, there wasn't such a thing as electric air conditioning. And so places that gathered lots of people, like churches and theaters in particular, 
wanted a way to try to cool things down when lots of people gathered during the summer months. And the way they figured out to do that was to take large blocks of ice, put it in front of a, in a, a fan, and then when that fan would blow over the ice, it would cool the air and hopefully start to cool the audiences. Well, when lots of people were in that room for a very popular show, the fan had to work harder and the ice melted faster. And so the, the word blockbuster started to emerge. From beverages to sports to entertainment to medicine, I, you know, I, I, I didn't even realize that that, that technique, that, that approach that you just described, came from, from a guy named Dr. John Gorey from Florida in the 1840s. Yeah, Gory's story is wild. And I guess depending on how you look at it, either very sad or a complete success. <laughs> he um, he was a doctor, but, you know, unlike doctors today, or at least what we think of doctors today, he didn't have a lot of money. Um, and that's important to the story because he went to, uh, he was from New York, he went to Florida to try to fight yellow fever, which was a disease that ravaged the American South every summer. And what he noticed is that yellow fever got really bad in the summer months and started to wane in the cool months. What he and doctors didn't know was that the disease was transmitted by mosquitoes. All he knew is that when things got colder, the disease went away. And so he thought, what if I could reduce the temperature of my patient's body to help mimic the cycle of the seasons? Maybe that would cure them of yellow fever. The only way he knew to do that, though, was with ice. But the thing is, is that in 1840s Florida, the ice trade was very new and ice was extremely expensive. Expensive. Locals called it white gold, and Gorey didn't have any money. So the only way he was going to get more ice is if he learned to make it himself. So after years of trial and error, he finally made a, a mechanical ice machine that could produce a significant amount of ice. Well, the phone lines are lighting up, so let's waste no time and head straight over to Mark in Fairfax. Hi, Mark. Hello. Hi, what's your ice Thank story? Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> uh, well, my uh, father, he was the youngest of 11 Italian immigrants in uh, the Bronx, New York City. And his family, the whole family, ran a, a um, ice delivering company. And they probably stored it and stuff. So my dad talks about ice a lot. And we have little trucks, you know, models of trucks and things. Um, anyway, I was just wondering... You know, they supported themselves that way when they moved here. And I'm just wondering what um, the Italian immigrants, but the Italians in general, um, particularly uh, along the East Coast or any major cities had in uh, the ice delivery in the early 1900s through, like, the Depression. Ah, anything to add there, Amy? Yeah, the um, Italian immigrant population had a huge influence on the ice industry. So like your family, Mark, a lot of them opened up um, their own ice delivery businesses, um, became ice men. Um, and, uh, you know, ice men are some of the most recognizable figures of the ice industry. I mean, it was one thing to carve the ice and or to make it from an ice machine, but the ice had to get to people's homes. And so it was largely this uh, Italian immigrant population that became Icemen who made that delivery. And um, they became kind of, as I write in my book, the, uh, the theme of song and story. They were an incredibly popular and recognized figure of the 19th and early 20th centuries. David writes, President Madison had a little temple built on top of his ice storage pit, 
Angela writes, I have recipes from the 18th and 19th century for ice cream and other foods that require that kind of chilling. My favorite thing as a child was to crank the ice cream maker for mom's peach ice cream. Can the guest, Amy, (laughs) speak to why people here in the U.S. really insist on the use of ice for water and cocktails when in Europe and the U.K. you have to really ask for it and they will give it to you, but dot, dot, dot. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's so funny. I've been one of those people who've been in Europe and made the mistake of asking for ice in my water. Um, it took a while to get it. I eventually got it, but it took a while. Um, <laughs> you know, Americans are uniquely obsessed with ice. And I think a lot of this goes back to Tudor and his um, outrageously persuasive marketing plan. Um, you know, he told people that, you know, if you wanted to have a life like mine, you know, a life of luxury and leisure, then you need to have ice because then you can enjoy the same delicious things that I do. And that, um, I guess we could call it a kind of classism, but, you know, in America, it, it was also um, a, a, an ambition of sorts. That an was aspiration, bed- yes. Yes, yes, an aspiration embedded into that marketing plan that just stayed with the industry for two centuries. So even as the industry evolved, that sense of aspiration uh, was still a part of marketing. I love that. Let's go to another call and Shalati in San Jose. Hi, Shalati. Yes. Uh, so, I came to America 20 years ago to get a master's uh, degree from the University of Denver. And um, my first on-campus job was at the Ritchie Center at the ice skating rink. And that is the first time I actually came across this amazing sport of ice skating. And at the age of 24, I had to learn it because if I had to work at the front desk, I I had to know what ice skating is. And it was a completely different experience. Um, Cut to now, 20 years later, my daughter, who is five years old, started taking ice skating lessons last year at the Shark Dice in San Jose. And it is just, it just feels like it it actually fills my heart um, to just see her gliding on that ice and know where her mom started and it's just a very beautiful feeling. So I, I felt like I, I, I should share this. Big fan of Forum, and thank you for all that you do for us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I, you know, I'm going to give out that phone number again because I know you, dear listeners, have stories to tell about the place of ice in your life. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You know, Amy, I I wanted to to, uh, go back to this question of medicine. You know, um, some of us are vaguely aware that that uh, cold or sort of chilling the human body is a thing that hospitals uh, can and often do now when when somebody, you know, like, sort of like when doctors want to sort of hit the pause button on something bad that's happening with somebody's body, perhaps after a major trauma like a car accident. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can talk about the history of therapeutic hypothermia. Yeah, hypothermic um 
uh, therapeutic hypothermia has been around for a very long time. And, you know, doctors were experimenting with this, you know, at least as early as the 19th century and probably much earlier. Um, it was uh, first thought to be an early cancer treatment. Um, you know, today we know that, um, you know, ice applied to the outside of the body isn't necessarily going to fight cancer, but it can reduce swelling and reduce pain. And so those, uh, those are the results that 19th century doctors were seeing. Um, and research in this area continued uh, pretty rapidly and with lots of progress until we hit World War II. And then, unfortunately, like so many things, that science fell into the hands of Nazi Germany. And there were horrific experiments that were conducted. And once word of those experiments um, got out, uh, American doctors uh, in particular just put that research to a halt. And it's really only in the last 20 years or so that um, doctors have started experimenting with the with the technology again to see what uh, types of effect cold can have on the human body and how it can be utilized to heal wounds and disease and, and other things. I was also thinking you, you might tell us a little bit about uh, the importance or the growing importance of chilled medicines, you know, uh, during the COVID pandemic, we, we learned that uh, that some some vaccines are better served cold. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as part of this experiment uh, that are taking place with ice and medicine, you know, what scientists have learned is that um, lots of vital life-saving vaccines uh, and other medications are only stable at extremely cold temperatures. And so, um, you know, that's why, um, you know, folks during the pandemic, for example, could get their their COVID shot um, under a FEMA tent, you know, either out in a some rural location or, um, you know, in the middle of a city far outside of a, a hospital wall. You know, it's because these vaccines were kept very, very cold. Let's go to the phones again. And Jimmy in Santa Rosa. Hi, Jimmy. Hi. Hi. What's your story? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for your programming. I love it. It brings back fond memories. Um, when I was four and five years old, we lived in New Mexico. And I remember with great fondness of going to the ice house with my mom. We had a special pan, which I still have to this day. And we would get a, a big chunk of ice, probably a 25-pound block. And it would come down the conveyor belt, and the ice man would put it in our bucket. And my mother and I would take it home and muscle it into our ice box. Oh, I love it. The 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 proverbial ice box. I used to hear about ice boxes when I was a little kid. Yeah, well, I had one when I was a little kid. And so and I, what what did your parents put in it? I, was it the same as what you would put in a refrigerator today? Well, yeah, that's where your milk went and your and your um eggs went in there. Um you know, only only things that really needed to be kept cold. Yeah. Not yeah. You know, not bread and things like that that we all put in there. Not the, I don't know that we even had a lot of mustard and, well, mustard doesn't go in there. But, you know, it was it right. was the essential. Very big. All the sauces and pastes that, I mean, basically take up an entire shelf of, of my refrigerator. I'll admit it right now. <laughs> no, those were, those were in there. It was the milk and the eggs and, and um, occasionally we had ice cream, but not very often. 
Yeah, it was more of an occasional treat. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for sharing your story. I I want to keep uh, plowing through uh, uh, phone calls because we got so many of them this hour. Uh, let's talk next to Greg in Walnut Creek. Hello. I grew up in Pleasanton, and uh, back in the 70s when I was in high school, late 70s, uh, there was an old ice house in town. It was left over from the days before refrigeration. And on Friday nights after football games, a group of us would go to the ice house, and we'd pick the skinniest kid in the group to shimmy up the chute because we did not want to pay the 25 cents for a 25-pound block of ice. <laughs> and so that kid would send the, the ice blocks down, and we'd put them in the back of the pickup truck, and then we'd drive up to the fancy golf course on the hillside. Uh, these days, I think it's gated. You can't get in there. Um, but but back then, we could drive up there, and then we'd go to the fairways, the tops of them, on the hills, and uh, slide down the blo- on, on the blocks, sitting on the blocks, in the uh, cold nights in the, with all the stars up above. And it was spectacular. And since then, when I, when I meet friends, I ask them, have you ever gone ice blocking? And they look at me and say, well, what is that? <laughs> and, uh, it what was a great one of the creative idea. Yeah, it it just uh, goes to show what what uh, what children will come up with <laughs> when given half a chance and and a block of ice. Uh, thank you so much for that, Greg. Liz writes: I lived in Mexico from 1974 to 1978 and lived on a dirt road for one year. I had no refrigerator as they were not included in rentals. However, my coldest macaroni salads were made when a man cried out. Hilo <laughs> or hielo, <laughs> and I'd open my door and purchase a block of ice. As you can tell, listeners, we're having a conversation about ice this hour. No doubt you want to be a part of it. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Email us at forum at KQED or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're monitoring those accounts. All three of them were at KQED Forum. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with author and historian Amy Brady about her new book, Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. 
You know, Amy, with summer on the wing here in California, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, uh, I, I don't know, the big ice block in the room, climate change. We call we call summer wildfire season here, also fall. And in recent years, every domicile from micro apartments in San Francisco to mansions in Beverly Hills runs air conditioning or a swamp cooler or just a whole bunch of fans in a desperate bid to stay cool. And, you know, there's no getting around the fact, and your book simply it doesn't try to do it either, that there's an unfortunate connection between our passion for for cool and what's happening to the planet. Yeah, there is an unfortunate connection. Um, you know, the American obsession with ice um, eventually led to the rise of electric refrigeration and air conditioning. Uh, and today, the, those things taken together form the cooling industry, which contributes approximately 10% of all carbon emissions every year. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. I mean, you know, you write in the 2020s, at least one in four American households uh, owned at least uh, two refrigerators. I mean, that it's insanity. And, you know, even as I was reading that, I was thinking of the family members I know who have two fridges. <laughs> and, and some of these family members are the same ones who will not turn on the AC in summer for love nor money. Um, th- there's a way in which we're kind of unconscious about our habits. Yeah, it is. You know, just like how ice, uh, you know, eventually became so ubiquitous, we don't even notice it anymore. Refrigeration is kind of become the same way. Um, You know, the unfortunate thing is just that of all of our appliances in the average American household, the refrigerator is the largest energy sack. Yeah. (laughs) And especially if you have two of them, uh, you know, there's no getting uh, it's not enough to obviate the fact that that refrigerators have become better, more efficient over the years. There's just more of them now. And and it's a problem. It's a problem, not just because of the energy, but also the chemicals. Yes, that's right. Uh, But what you say there is really important to remember, which is that electric refrigerators are so much more energy efficient now than they were just 30 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. And, you know, that's largely because of the work that California did. So thanks, California. (laughs) Well, you know, where where do you see this going uh, in in the future, though? I mean, you know, uh, the problem the problem has only gotten worse. There are plenty of people, you know, in in New Delhi, in, you know, uh, Costa Rica, right? You know, in in Zimbabwe, who who want who want all of it? Who want the ice cream and the cocktails and the and the dairy products and the and the medicines on ice? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, all of that is true. And then you know, even here in the relatively privileged privileged United States, you know, we're not going to give up our refrigerators and ice machines anytime soon. Um, but you know, I. I think that what's going to happen is going to be similar to what we saw happen in the 1970s during the energy crisis, which is that because of a push from the industry as well as, you know, just, um, you know, cultural uh, uproar around the issue, we're going to see a, a force 
um, we're going to see a kind of a force on the, the government to re-examine what our standards look like. At the same time, we're also seeing some new technologies emerge that utilize uh, far fewer and, and sometimes none at all of the uh, dangerous refrigerants that a lot of our refrigerators are using today um, and are also much more energy efficient. Um, I think the next decade is going to be very telling in how quickly we adapt to these new technologies. Yeah, I, I suppose that's that's uh, in a way we're we're hoping or you're hoping for for new technologies to come in and uh, address some of the impacts of of old technologies developed so far. Yeah, yeah, and some are already um, being uh, developed. There is a new refrigerator that relies on um, a material that acts like a magnet rather than on uh, liquid refrigerants that is proving to be popular or proving to be, uh, to work well anyway. And there are some major uh, retailers like uh, Whirlpool um, and a few others that are starting to manufacture them. Um, there's also in Cambridge, there are some fascinating experiments being done on a material called plastic materials. And it's actually not made of plastic, but the molecules in this material have a plasticity to them that mimic the way that coolants work in the more conventional refrigerator. And if those start to take off, that could be that could be transformational. Fascinating. Let us go next to the phones and Timothy in San Francisco. Hi, Timothy. Hi there. Thank you for the great subject book conversation. And uh, and I'm going. To, I'm going to swing back to the earlier part. Nostalgia for the. I grew up with one of my grandparents was born in 1886 in Maine, and um, and they told me about the ice man up on the lakes cutting blocks, and then they would wrap it in. In a, in a house somewhere and then uh, in sawdust and then ship it down wherever, New York, Boston, whatnot. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and I, 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 you know, it was dangerous work. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I bet so anyway, it was, yeah. Completely off topic. Anyway, no, but. N- not at all, Timothy. I'm Thank you so to- much for calling in. Yeah. Um, let's, let's take another call uh, because we've got just a few minutes left. How about Holly in San Francisco? Hi, Holly. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, this mine is just about like the guy the fellow before me. Um, my great grandfather had an Excelsior plant on the Mississippi River, and Excelsior was not sawdust; it was these curly shavings of wood, and they used that to pack the um, ice in. So the, the river boats that were going up to Minnesota to cut ice and bring it back would would buy the Excelsior there, and maybe maybe they needed to refresh it on the way back. I don't know. And as he said, dangerous work, because you weren't allowed to smoke anywhere near there. Oh, I bet. Because <laughs> the, all these wood shavings would just go up in, in uh, no time. So. Oh, man. Was, well, thank you for... That was the way they shipped ice. Yes. Yeah. Holly, thank you for, for sharing that. I, Amy, what we're hearing is that, you know, a, a lot of this history is still within living memory. It is. You know, um, when I think of refrigerators, you know, I they've been around my entire life. But um, like so many of the callers coming in, um, ice is still, the use of ice is still a very recent phenomenon. In fact, um, there were still ice box manufacturers in the United States as late as the 1950s. 
Yeah, <laughs> this is so. I I suppose yeah. My my dad would have <laughs> would have remembered an icebox. Let's go to the phones again. And Wanda in Palo Alto. Hi, Hello. Wanda. Yes, I'm uh, pushing eighty. And when I was a little girl in Albuquerque, New Mexico, back in the late forties, early fifties, my grandma had an icebox, and it was formed. With uh, you by using a hole in the wall of her kitchen where a box was built, and this box had two doors. A door opened into the kitchen where she could take out a pudding or something, and a door that opened to the outside, and that's where the ice man came every day and put a block of ice into her house without bothering her. And as I'm thinking about this, I do not remember how this service got paid for. I don't know whether commercial accounts were the way people paid for things or what. But anyway, that was the icebox that I understood for quite some time until we moved to a much more modern place and had a metal movable appliance <laughs> yeah, that is fabulous. Thank you for sharing that story, Wanda. Um, let's uh, make sure we get some of the comments in here. Paul writes, an interesting medical tip is that a craving to eat ice, also known as ice pica, is a classic symptom of iron deficiency anemia. Ellen writes, I am a strong believer in ice for healing and pain. After a cancer surgery, I only use ice for at least two weeks in lieu of pain meds. It was amazing and very effective. Same for headaches. Uh, so, it, you know, basically what we're hearing from our, our listeners, uh, Amy, is, is all of this history is very real, very present uh, in people's lives. I'm so happy to hear that and and not surprised. In researching this book, I was amazed at how many areas of American life that ICE touches. It's all so deeply entwined. Well, let's see. I think we've got time for a few more calls. Nick in Vallejo, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> What's so your ICE story? story? <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm over 70, and I grew up in San Diego, California, which is warm. My father... We, we we needed ice, okay? We needed the cold stuff. And my father actually got the instructions on how to build uh, an ice-making machine from a book called Audels, A-U-D-E-L, uh, an amazing book. tells you how to build anything in the world. He actually built our refrigerator. and um, But it didn't run on electricity. It, ran on, it, it had a flame in it. It had gas. It was gas-powered. That's the old style. And um, I, I just thought I'd throw that in there because people just think of a refrigerator as something to plug in. This one, you had to light it. <laughs> that is great. Thank you for sharing that, Roy. Um, let's see. I think we can take a call from Roy in Hemet. Hi, Roy. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing fine, thank you. Well, my my story is um, that as a teenager, 
we used to come across old wooden ice boxes that had brass all over them, um, and they were usually in the dumps or out uh, in a field somewhere. And um, and I would take them home and refinish all the wood and shine it up, and then turn around and sell it. And it was uh, the proceeds of those old ice boxes that I was able to buy my first car with. <laughs> Fabulous! Congratulations, and another example of of just the immense creativity. Uh, that you you see in America of yesteryear and America today. Um, I just want to say you're listening to Forum, and I'm Rachel Myro in Formina Kim. Uh, well, let's see. Have we got time for a few more comments? Um, Bill writes, this is something, uh, this is an interesting question for ha- perhaps earlier in the book, Amy. Wouldn't natural ice have had a lot of pond debris and microorganisms in it? Oh my goodness. Natural ice was disgusting. <laughs> it, was, it was so gross. It had all of those things. And then as the Industrial Revolution wore on, uh, it also contained all the detritus that ran off from factories and farms that just let loose their chemicals and waste products into the water that we that we carved and then eventually ate. <laughs> so, there there may have been a few deaths is what you're saying. <laughs> there there unfortunately there were there were many many deaths. And and that's you know and the mechanical ice companies that came shortly after that they knew a marketing opportunity when they saw it and they made a point <laughs> to tell people just how dirty natural ice was. Now, you may not have an, an answer to this one, but I'll just throw it out there just the same. Uh, a listener writes, could you speak about the industry of ice out of Lake Tahoe? Uh, you know, I don't know too much about the specifics of, of Lake Tahoe spe- specifically, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, it it certainly fed, you know, the ice needs of people within hundreds of miles of there and, you know, would have supplied ice to homes as well as hospitals and restaurants. Um, you know, I know that it was a very popular hub, I guess we could say, of ice, of ice carving and delivery. Wonderful. Well, let's talk now to Mike in San Francisco. Hi, Mike. Hi. Thanks for um, sharing the subject. It's one that's kind of near and dear to me that uh, I'm involved with a a company based out of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, in which we've um, designed and developed the first uh, refrigerant-free heat pump for heating and cooling. And it's based on patented Sterling technology, which is about a 200-year-old technology. Um, NASA's been using it. Uh, We've, frankly, just redesigned it to be cheap, uh, low-cost and affordable, and offering a replacement to Rankin refrigerant units, uh, heat pumps from like Train or Carrier or Daikin that are all refrigerant-based. We replace with a refrigerant-free, zero-carbon technology. And the best part is it's this, we manufacture at the same cost. And We're how, how have you been finding that pitch uh, landing on, on uh, consumers and retailers? Are, are, are they, a great question. Are they it, open it, it to the starts, idea? The consumers are now, especially in California, I think that, you know, we're trying to go to the group that cares about purity of air, the purity of heating and cooling. And what we've seen is an embracement to understand that 
refrigerants in the air. And, and mind you, there are 50 deaths a year in the U.S. alone from refrigerant ingestion. Um, that's actually from kids. These, the the 500,000 HVAC technicians that deal with these refrigerant systems are exposed to the toxicity as well. So what we're looking to do is, frankly, and, and for, for the families that we're all breathing in schools and churches, hospitals, uh, and our homes, um, the air is contaminated. And the problem has been the Montreal Protocol, the Kyoto Protocol, uh, the Paris Agreement, there was to be a ban on refrigerants 10 years ago. And what happened? The EPA extended that ban. Why? Because the companies, the large OEM manufacturers, have put lobbying dollars to push back the regulatory ban on what should have been banned to the public and the safety of the public many years ago. Well, Mike, I want to thank you and and say good on you for for being part of the of the positive change. I I do want to make sure that we we give our last word though to to our uh, our guest and author Amy Brady. Uh, Amy, tell me, you know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, are are you hopeful? Are you genuinely hopeful that that we can take this thing which um, has been both a joy to many generations, uh, but but also a, a a troubling influence on climate change. Are you hopeful we can turn this narrative around? I am hopeful because we've seen how quickly things can change with this industry. Um, you know, more more recently, again, I want to talk about the 1970s, you know, energy crisis and the way that California stepped up with a new set of state standards that the uh, that the federal government eventually adopted that forced a lot of change in the industry. But even if we go way back to the dawn of the American ice trade, the ways in which people learned how to consume and ship and use ice in their lives happened in a blink of an eye. And, you know, as I say in my book, when we look at how quickly things can change, I have no doubt that we can also find a quick way to save ice. Amy Brady. Her new book is Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, a cool history of a hot commodity. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Can I get it right? Just can't let it go. I opened up, she let me down. I won't feel that no more. I got memories. This is crazy. Shame nothing like the girl like you used to know. I don't mean to take it out of you, baby, but I can't help it. Cause my heart is in the same old condition that baby left it. And I apologize. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.